Okay, good morning real quick. Um, hopefully this is a two-minute warning. Pastor Grady will be teaching today's lesson. Uh, we are on the Saving Truth Doctrine for Lay People uh, by uh, Reverend uh, Dr. Professor Kurt Marquardt. Uh, so that starts in your book on page, wait for it, it's coming, page 33, okay? So that's what we're going to be on today. This chapter, uh, just a little bit of background, um, is actually written by, and we've got a, we've got a little bit of a price connection, the congregation, some of you know, right? Yeah? No? Oh, yeah. oh okay. <laughs> You're all so energetic today. So this is by Robert D. Price. Uh, and um, while we're kind of waiting for Pastor Grady uh, to get in here, I just want you to kind of put two and two together. We spent a lot of time on the first chapter here, which is all about... What? What's our formal principle? Those of you that have studied other religions, one of the ways to study religion is to look at the formal principle and the material principle. The formal principle is where you start, probably be the easiest way. What's our formal principle as Lutheran Christians? Uh, close. How do you know that? Holy Scripture, right? So the Bible is God's Word. That's, that's our base, our foundation. So we start with Holy Scripture. Okay? So as we might define other, um, not only religions, but also other confessions of faith, for example, uh, Roman Catholics, in answering that question, would certainly say Scripture, but they would say Scripture plus what? Tradition. Okay? Uh, church tradition. That which the church has said over the years. Okay? Or if you get off into the Reformed side of things, what might you add to Scripture as well? And I know Reformed is a big sticky wicket, so we'll just leave it as the big umbrella for now. Uh, but what would we add to that? Reason. Okay? Uh, and or experience. Right? Okay? Uh, so for us, it's Scripture. And that's why uh, I'm just killing time for you, Pastor Grady. Um, that's why we've spent all that time looking at what Scripture is and, and, and why Professor Marquardt uh, lays that for us. Now we go from Holy Scripture to chapter 2, uh, which is now all about who? Who God is, right? Who God has revealed Himself to be, okay? And, and not only just God in general, but the living God, which the last thing I'm going to say before I turn it over to this guy behind me, is our material principle is what? Somebody said it earlier. Material principle is that Jesus Christ is God and Savior of the world, right? So material principle would be specifically that we are justified or made righteous by this Jesus guy who's both man and God. Got it? So he's just kind of setting the foundation. And that's where we come back to when we talk about faith. We, we learn all these things. We always have to make sure we've got the foundation stones where they need to be. Are you ready? I okay. All right. You're all his or he's all yours. Well, this week you got the other big ugly guy. So uh, <laughs> no offense intended. Uh, did, did we pray yet? No. Okay, we should do that. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has given us salvation, bought us with his blood, and made us your own. We ask that you keep us in this faith. 
to the end of our days so that we may have eternal life with you in heaven. Amen. So uh, chap- this chapter of the book says it was written by Robert Preuss. Um, I guess we actually, what, get into Markhart's work in chapter 3, I think, is the way I've seen this. Um, so let's just start. How many of you guys have this book, have been reading this book? I'm just curious. One, two, three, a handful. Good. So we're just sort of reading it as we go along and then uh, throwing in some extra comments here and there and looking at some of the Bible verses. Um, so you can read along here. All of Scripture is theology, language or talk about God. This chapter talks about the Trinity and so rather obviously about God. Yet when the topic at hand turns to justification by grace or the Lord's Supper or eternal life or the lives of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, we are always and preeminently talking about God. Christian theology talks about God on the basis of Scripture. And that was sort of what was in the last chapter. We look at Scripture. We don't look over here and over there. For God is a living and speaking God who has made himself known to fallen mankind in various ways, through the prophets and Old Testament Scriptures, before the advent of his Son, and through the apostolic Scripture of the New Testament, after the death and resurrection of Christ. Since there are many important and essential topics that we cannot discuss in the present chapter, this treatment of the living God will, be, will seem and will be inadequate and incomplete. Here we will attempt to answer three basic questions about God. How do we know him? What is he like? And who is he? To his point of uh, this will seem inadequate and incomplete, uh, I don't know. There's probably entire doctoral courses you could just take on these topics. So, yeah, it, it seems like uh, theology and the study of God is always, there's always more. There's always more you can look at in Scripture and pull out of it. How do we know God? To know God means not merely to know things about Him, that He, can, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that He is righteous, almighty, wise, good, and loving, important and fundamental as such knowledge is. According to Scripture, our knowledge of God is similar to our knowledge by acquaintance. It is a knowledge of the heart which results in love. Deuteronomy 13 and see Judges. I don't have those on here. Uh, such knowledge is not merely factual, but involves a relationship as a walking with God in communion. Micah 6.8 says here, says, He has told you, a man, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So God wants us to have this relationship with him and with the people around us. Um, it is a personal and intimate like, not like our knowledge of a dear friend, and it affects our lives. Where there is no knowledge of God, there is neither truth nor mercy. Hosea 4.1 reads, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. It, uh, there, so it goes on to say there is no truth or mercy, neither obedience or sacrifice to him. The, uh, I know whom I have believed, St. Paul says, and I am persuaded that he is able to to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Uh, here we see that, the, that knowing God always involves personal trust it, uh, and confidence. Looking back, I actually meant to copy this sheet for you guys with these verses on it so we could look at them together. Um, 
he goes, he's looking at Romans 8.38 here. It says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here we see that knowing God always involves personal trust and confidence. Christ knows his sheep. His sheep know him. How appropriate for this week. Um, when Peter denies Christ and says, I know him not, and, and I found this new, he cuts himself off from God and his grace, and he loses everything. Three times. I don't know the man. And he just cuts himself away. When Jesus says, this is life eternal, that they might know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, he declares that salvation and life eternal are the results of knowing God and what he, in his grace, has done for sinners. Um, Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy 1.13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, that's quite a list, uh, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. The Old Testament teaches that, that one knows God only when one recognizes his redemptive activity. Philip Melanchthon echoes this truth when he says, to know Christ is to know his benefits. So a lot of people know about Jesus. They might study him in academia and things like that and be able to tell you all the history but they don't know him in a saving fashion. They don't know him as the Savior. And Melanchthon says, to know Christ is to know his benefits, that is, salvation and eternal life. Much modern theology has emphasized the personal, experiential, and relational aspect of our knowledge of God to the virtual exclusion of revealed facts and information about God and what he has done to save us. It tended to ignore, poo-poo, and deny the historicity, historicity, sorry, of the mighty acts of God and the redemptive acts of Jesus, as well as the pure doctrine of the biblical gospel, which recounts these acts and interprets them for us. This is not only contrary to every page of the Bible, which gives us facts and information about God, but it also ends up as nonsensical. How can one know God without knowing anything about God? So, in the scriptures, the existence of God is never questioned. And that's something some people have a hard time um, when studying theology. It's always, well, does God really exist? There is a God. Um, I've told the confirmation kids, if you study anthropology, uh, every civilization has a God of some sort, whether it be, today it might be the sun. <laughs> it's like, what's that big orange thing? No, don't do that. Um, but it is nice, and we'll probably go out and worship in God's creation, which he made. But the sun is not a god. And all civilizations, uh, in trying to explain the beauty that God has created around them, will come up with a god of some sort. Um, but in Scripture, the existence of God is never questioned. The prophets and apostles and saints of the Old Testament take the existence and power of God for granted. They may deny God, defy him, and rebel against him, but they do not question his existence. When the house of Israel and of Judah dealt treacherously against the Lord, the prophet says, they have belied the Lord and said, it is not he, literally he is not, neither shall evil come upon us. Um, 
Uh, they have not denied God's existence. However, they have become practical atheists, living as though there were no God, not bothering about him or his commands. Um, Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Um, this also describes all of us in our unbaptized state. Uh, where we are just sinners before God claims us as his own. And then even little babies, as you'll see in both services today, are baptized, given God's spirit, given faith, and then they get to claim that wonderful thing we live through our entire life as being both saint and sinner. Um, we're not perfect, and we never will be on this side of creation. And we That's why we have this sort of, I don't want to say love-hate relationship, but this joy and at the same time, sadness when we lose a loved one. We know they're in heaven. We're ecstatic. We, we have the joy of Easter right there before us, but at the same time, they're not here with us. They are out of this, we often say, this veil of tears. You know, they don't have to suffer. They don't have to suffer with the sin they're still living with, the temptation they're living with. They're free of that. And so we're happy for their joy and, and living in the, in the true resurrection, and we are still here. And so we're saddened without them. Um, let's see. So yeah, so, and a lot of the world lives like there's no God, they, or they make it a foolish God. According to Scripture, the knowledge of God is everywhere. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Uh, the, um, the glory and the power of God are in nature and in history to be seen by all. This lists uh, Psalm 8, Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 10. Um, those are just entire books, and I did not put them in here to, to read. But only God's people know him and worship him rightly. In a sense, even sin proclaims God. For sin is above all rebellion against God. The polemics in the New and Old Testament are directed in favor of monotheism, the superiority of Christianity over other religions, and the pure doctrine of the gospel. Uh, all throughout the Old Testament, there is Yahweh, there's the Lord, none other. And there was none other to be worshipped. And this is where uh, the Israelites, you know, fell flat on their face. Every time they encountered another culture, they somehow bought into what that culture was doing. They worshipped their gods, they worshipped their idols. And every time it led them into bondage and misfortune, if you will. God, you know, God punished those deeds, and he punished them to draw them back to him, to help them see his mercy. Pastor Grady? Yeah. I have a, I have a, I have a, may I ask a question? Sure. Um, it, well, it's for, it's for all of you. You ready? What is the one thing now that has, has really changed in our culture, based on what we have just read, um, that in the past was kind of always a given? But now if you pay attention to any of the current news, surveys, polls, there's, there's one thing that has really changed that is somewhat unique and important for us as Christians to be aware of. Anybody want to bite on that one? Yeah. Okay. So in the past, there, there was always... Uh, at least majority-wise, an acceptance that there was a God, right? Or perhaps even gods. 
Now, if you pay attention to any of the, all the polls that are out there, uh, especially here in North America, did you know that there are more people identifying now as atheists than as any other religion, even Christian? Did you know that had changed? The number of people that have identified as atheism was actually always a small group. Now that number has surpassed those who would cling to either monotheism or otherwise. That's interesting. Pay attention to some of that in the news. And so we are dealing with a culture, when you talk about our evangelism and outreach, it used to be as a church that we could just assume that most people at least believed in what? The concept of a God. And now not, not so much. Now, we continue to preach and teach the same thing, but just be aware of that as you have conversations with people in your neighborhood and at the water cooler. Um, and, and what a great opportunity maybe to share a little bit of that hope that you have within you, that that word, that precious gospel may do its work. So hope I didn't steal thunder there. But No, I just looked at a dollar bill. It still, still does say in God we trust, but you wonder how many people really have an idea of what that means to trust in God. And to your point of people being um, unchurched versus, we used to say they were de-churched. You know, they'd been in church, you know, they fell away, and then, you know, they have a baby and they go, oh, there's something bigger going on here. I better go back to church, you know, and, and they still do that some, but if you talk to kids, if you have them that are in uh, elementary school or junior high or high school and ask them, how many of your friends go to church and how many of your friends have never been to church? Uh, there's, there's a vast number there that have just never even had their shadow across the door of any church. It's just not important to their families. And that's what you're saying. You know, it's, just, it's not part of our society the way it was 30 years ago, certainly 50 years ago. Um, let's see. Onward. There is no speculation in the Bible about the origin or development of God, although that sort of thing was quite common in ancient heathen religions. Um, all the stories and uh, things about how different gods were formed, uh, God just exists. God does not evolve or emerge from something. The Bible does not give us a history of Yahweh, that is, the Lord, as today's English translation frequency says. He does not change or develop, neither is God a God among many, as in modern Buddhism and Mormonism. He is always portrayed in Scripture as the eternal, unchangeable God and Lord of all. How then do we know God? The ready answer of Scripture is that we do not know Him by our reasonable efforts and investigation of His essence or attributes. Rather, He reveals Himself to us. How does he do this? In two ways. First, through the natural course of, this, of his created order, nature, and of human events, history. And second, through special acts of revelation. If, if you look at all of creation, and I'm sure many of you have been to more beautiful places in the world than I have. I've been in national parks, and I've been Grand Canyon, and... Uh, other places, and you can look at, at just the beauty around us and know that this just does not happen by chance, that something had to put all this in motion, and, you know, Big Bang, they want to say, or whatever, they just, they can, well, something had to happen, but eh, what? We're not exactly sure. The Bible says it was created. 
Six days. God created everything. Um, God's creation bespeaks his goodness and wisdom. The mountains, sea, and waves are witness to the power and majesty of God. The seasons testify to his goodness. His revelation in nature as a personal and providential creator, God stands in contrast to idols of the heathens and the false gods of deists and philosophers. This natural knowledge of God is very clearly addressed by Paul in Romans 19.20. Because that which is known, knowable, of God is manifest to them, for God manifested unto them. For the invisible things of him since the creation of the world are clearly seen, being perceived through the things that are made, even his everlasting power and divinity, that they may be without excuse. Paul tells us here that the things that are made gives evidence to all that there is, to all that there is a God who is highly exalted above the world and time, an eternal God who has created the ends of the earth. This goes back to what I said about anthropology. All civilizations realize that there is a God. The evidence is so clear that anyone may see, that is, know, that there is an invisible God who is all-powerful and has created this visible order. But from this created order, anyone can also can also know God's divinity, his Godhead, his incomprehensible, incomparable, and glorious nature, what Luke calls the majesty or mighty power of God when he describes Jesus' divine healing of miracles. Um, This in uh, Luke uh, 9, 43, uh, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. This was after he was healing a boy of an unclean spirit that the disciples could not cast out. Jesus came into creation, entered his creation, to perform miracles, acts of mercy, healing, to prove he was the Son of God. Um, Anybody could have seen his works and known who he was by what he did. He did what nobody else could do, raise people from the dead, himself from the dead, to prove that he was the Son of God. Wait a, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, correct me. So you're telling me that even though people may fail to recognize that there is a God, that this God has put into place a ways and means of testifying to his own existence, regardless of what human beings do. Yeah. Just asking. (laughs) Sometimes we forget about that. I mean, the natural knowledge of God. You know, I mean, I think he's going to go on and talk a little bit about conscience, but just looking outside, and God is still at work through that. You know, I don't want want to steal the rest of it, but that's still at work. So there, there, there is revelation from God in a most amazing way to his own existence. So don't take it all on your shoulders that... You are the good shepherd in that way. All right, I'm yeah. done. Go ahead. Yeah. Let's see. Where was I then? Yeah, Luke 9. We went down through that one. I don't know. Um, oh, there we go. Whoever does not recognize all of this is without excuse, for it is there to be known. Uh, So there's the answer to your question, yeah. Um, 
Yet all the knowledge that the, that the unconverted sinner can gain from God's creation and his providence in nature and human events can never save a person. Yeah. So all the knowledge that the unconverted sinner can gain from God's creation, we can wander around the woods and go, oh, there's a God. It's beautiful. Look at this big, huge sequoia tree. I have pictures of me in the redwood forest. I'll have to pull these all up. There's various forests. See a big tree. I'd walk up to the big tree and I'd just put my arms around it. Like, oh, tree, you know. And, you know, it's like, it's a tree. God made it. I was joking. I wasn't worshiping trees. But back in the day, there were people called tree huggers. I was sort of mocking them, I guess. Um, But I was actually hugging trees. But no matter how you might look at creation and go, there is a God, unless you know Christ, there is no salvation apart from Christ and what He does. So to know God, a God is one thing, but to know God... Uh, as it says, in nature, uh, in nature is revealed God's power and majesty and wisdom, even his benevolence, but not his love that saves lost and condemned sinners and grants them eternal life. Our old theologians used to say that God's revelation in nature can bring us to a knowledge that there is a God with magnificent attributes, but not a knowledge of who this God is, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Triune in his very essence, who is a gracious Savior, God and Lord. That is revealed only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans 1.17. And even the Godhead, the Godhead majesty and wrath revealed from heaven are persistently and always distorted by people. Um, I don't know if I have that up here or not. 118, yeah. Romans 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the natural uh, inclination of someone with a, what we might call a natural knowledge of God, is just to say, well, God's wonderful. Look at all he did. But they want to deny their need for a Savior. They want to deny his most benevolent work that that we are informed of by by Scripture. Um, I got to quit looking off the page. All heathen and unbelievers, according to Scripture, may well know God in, in the sense that they have an awareness of his existence and presence and power. In another sense, though, they do not know him. This does not mean that they have an absolute ignorance of him. It means they are without him. Paul calls them um, athoi, yeah, atheists, in, pra- in, a pra- in the practical sense of having no God. But if a man cannot know God from the created order and from his own futile searchings after the deity, how can he know him, who he is and what he is really like? We know him only when we are known by him, Paul says, Galatians 4.29, when he chooses to disclose himself to us, not generally as in nature, but specifically and especially in his Son and through his gospel word, which comes to us in the sacred scriptures. Knowledge of salvation is only through Christ and the gospel. Going back to atheists who want to believe there's no God and get mad when you mention his name or when people want to pray in schools or all of these things, um, why do they get so angry about something they don't believe in? (laughs) It's like they get all wrapped around the axles um, and mad and 
by definition, they don't have a God. So they're all mad about something they don't believe in. Um, I, I, they don't want to know Christ is really what it boils down to. They don't want to have to uh, bow down, if you will, to the fact that there is a God that they are accountable to, that they need the grace, mercy, and love of for the forgiveness of their sins. So they set up an idol for themselves that is a God of their own making, and that God does not uh, play well or conform well to what Scripture says, who God is in Christ. But if man cannot know God from the created order and from his own futility, wait, I read that already. Okay. Knowledge of salvation is only through Christ and the gospel. It is important for us to emphasize this basic fact because it goes against the pride of our fallen and sinful nature, what I just said, and the whole spirit of our times. In the modern world, Western world, our primary concern, seeking to follow ancient Greek thought, has been to understand, explain, and comprehend reality around us, including God, and this presumably, presumably for practical purposes, if there are any. Um, Coupled with this concern is the desire to control environment and escape the frustrations of not understanding nature and everything about us. So, I mean, this was even present in ancient times when, you know, people didn't understand the seasons. So there must be a God that controls the seasons. <laughs> they were right, but they just didn't know him in the true sense. Yes? Yeah, um, if that's possible, and I almost say that if because I think Africa as a continent has more evangelical, yeah, evangelical efforts, you know, out there. But, you know, let's say there is that person that's out there on an island in the South Pacific that no satellite has ever seen. It's so small, there's a tribe of pygmies that are, we can't see them. Um, we, we would look to the mercy of a gracious God. I mean, his, God's goal is for all people to be saved. Um, so we, we simply... There would be a natural knowledge that there was a God. There, if they have not heard, then they cannot know. Um, and to that, we leave to, you know... God's mercy. I mean, if, if, if they saw the ship go by and they shot at him when the missionaries came, that, that's probably the wrong thing to do. Yeah, in many ways. I, I think the, the sad truth of this is, um, and, and it's, it's kind of a tough truth, is if, if a, it goes to the issue of pregnancy and loss of children. You know, if, if you have someone who has lost a child before childbirth, and um, I think one of the most difficult things for a pastor, if you would run into this person, uh, is were they themselves in the church? Was that child in the womb exposed to the Word of God? Did it hear the Word of God to believe? It, you know, to, to a, a, a woman, a couple that lost a child in utero, uh, that's been sitting in church, hearing God's word, singing hymns, reading scripture, we would say, yeah, that child has 
been exposed to God's Word by the power of the Spirit. We believe that child can hear and have faith. And should that child die before baptism, um, we have faith in a gracious God that does what he says, that his word has power and does create faith. Uh, the same people that would deny that would be the ones that would put speakers on their bellies so the baby could hear Mozart and be born a genius. I, how do you believe one and not the other? I don't know. Yes? Yeah, but that, you know, it, sorry, just turn the mic off. His point was he was in a uh, plane crash 40 years ago with five other, with four other guys in the plane, and he's the only one that survived. No, four other planes. Four other planes. And I was the only plane that survived. And you were on the only plane that survived. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that God lets us live long enough to hear his word, you know, is a wonderful blessing. And that he gave you a, a life beyond that, which the others didn't have. Yeah. So, the... Uh, oh, can I? May I? Yeah, please. So, he answered the, you answered the one side of the coin very well, right? So, God desires all to be saved. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in the steadfast love. So, we leave that with God's, what he has revealed to himself about himself, right? Who, who can know the mind of God? So while God may not give a particular plan and explanation for why some are rescued, why some are not, I mean, that sort of thing, um, he says, this is who I am. This is my identity. But then the other side of the coin, and this is why it's important for us as a church to continue to do what we do, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Does he not? So in that, and that's why, so while... while you know, we don't take the salvation of others upon our shoulders. We leave that in God's gracious will, and, and, and perhaps he's got another way of doing that that we don't know about, but it's kind of the thing, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around, does it make a noise, right? And you get all these existential type of questions. We know who God is, and we stick with that. Secondly, he's told us to go and do what? As a church, to go and, and preach God's word, right? Uh, to teach it, to administer the sacraments. And that's why if you go back to the Augsburg Confession, the very first document of the Lutheran Church, you know, the first three articles start with, start with the existence of God. Article 4 is justification. And then Article 5 is what? To obtain this, Christ did what? Established the church, the office of the holy ministry. The means now where this knowledge might be disseminated and given. Okay, through all those things. So just kind of keep that, piece that together. It is a little paradoxical because it doesn't work according to our Western way of thinking uh, because you're, you're dealing with some things that, that can't be, you know, jived together. Jived, that's a weird word. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Let's see. 
So our concern about reality around us and understanding it for practical purposes, if there any. Coupled with this concern is a desire to control the environment and to escape the frustration of not understanding nature and everything about us. Such an attitude and approach to life is based on the assumptions that the principles of the universe and of all reality can be grasped by the human intellect. In the area of modern science, such as such procedure has proved to be very fruitful. And I think what you got to remember is modern science itself is a gift from God. You know, to those who would say, well, I'm waiting for the Lord to heal me, so I'm not going to the doctor and I'm not taking the medicine because I believe it's bad for you. God gave us physicians and scientists and developed, you know, nuclear interventions for cancer and all these wonderful gifts, and we should use everything he gives us to the best of our ability that our knowledge will allow us. Um, so in the area of modern science, such a, such a procedure has proved to be very fruitful. Yet where God and religion are concerned, such an attitude turns man in the wrong direction. For God cannot be found, analyzed, and understood by the speculative mind of finite, sinful man. He is simply not the object of speculation. It goes back to there's no question in the Bible of whether or not God exists. Moreover, no speculation can tell us what God's Word says, that God is a loving, personal Creator God, maker and sustainer of all things visible and invisible, a Redeemer God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, this should sound familiar, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, and that He is a comforter and a sanctifier who is the Lord and giver of life and thus creates and sustains Christ's church on earth. Only the revelation in Scripture shows us the true God, God as He really is, and as He has really declared Himself in Christ, a Savior God. In the Scripture, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of salvation are inextricably linked. And who brings us salvation? Jesus. The priest Zacharias sings by inspiration that Jesus brings the knowledge of salvation to God's people by procuring the remission of sins. Peter says that we grow in grace when we grow in the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. According to the Apostle Paul, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth of God are inseparable. And this is all because of our mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ, gave himself as a ransom for us. So to know, God, to know our Savior Christ, therefore, is to have salvation and to know God. And there is no other way to know God. So if you want to know God, you have to know him as a saving God a God who has sacrificed himself, sacrificed his son for your salvation. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten son, better text say God, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Just prior to this text, John had spoken of the in incarnation and said the divine grace and truth are gained only through Christ. No man can see God and live. Yet the son declares that God makes himself known to all who know and believe in the Son. So Jesus can say that one who has seen him, the incarnate Son, has seen the Father. This is what he says in Scripture. You know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, it's that trinity that, that they are one, yet they are separate. And, and the Son enters creation so that we may know God. It's the only way it can be. Uh, you can't know God apart from Christ the knowledge of Christ, and the salvation he gives. Uh, let's see. Where's a good place to cut? 
I would say, let's stop there. A few minutes early. Um, sticker, if, you, if you're here for the late service, uh, what a joy. We're going to do, there's, there's uh, three things, in, in, or four things in, in the Bible, in the Bible, in the hymnal that are in order. Baptism, confirmation, uh, marriage, and funeral. Well, we're going to get two of them in the late service. We're going to get baptism. We'll, we'll see the Sukula's uh, little daughter brought into the Christian faith and given God's name in holy baptism. And then Allie Shaw could not be here for confirmation due to a death in the family, so Allie Shaw is going to be confirmed right uh, before the prayer of the church in this service as well. Um, yeah, we won't be doing a funeral or a wedding, but... Uh, <laughs> Two beautiful ways that God, you know, we, we, he, he gives himself to us, makes, his, makes us his own, and then we get to confess that faith back in truth and what we believe and we do every week. So uh, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you've given creation that we may know you, know that you exist, but more so you've given your son so we may know you as a loving father, a loving caretaker, a loving shepherd of us sinful beings, that you've come to sacrifice your son for the sins of the world, for our sins, that we may know you and have salvation and life in your name. And we give thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen.